From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, June 28th. I'm Marco Werman. The Supreme Court upholds the individual mandate. We'll hear global perspectives on the health care debate. Also, why American craft beer sells in Europe. I read a couple years ago that beer is the second most popular hobby on the Internet after pornography. So, Plus, how some Pacific coral reefs may dodge the worst effects of global warming. That the rate of warming will be slower in these key pockets of coral life may offer them a better chance in the long run for adaptation and survival. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece, presenting Endeavor, Sunday, July 1st at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The U.S. Supreme Court handed President Obama a major victory today. The court upheld the key provisions of the health care law, including the so-called individual mandate. That's the part of the law that requires most Americans to purchase health insurance or pay a penalty. In a 5-4 to four ruling, the court decided the mandate does not overstep Congress's power to tax individuals. President Obama hailed the ruling. Whatever the politics... Today's decision was a victory for people all over this country whose lives will be more secure because of this law and the Supreme Court's decision to uphold it. The president also said the country can't afford to refight the political battles of two years ago or go back to the way things were. Obama's Republican opponent, Mitt Romney, had, as you'd expect, the opposite reaction. This is a time of choice for the American people. Our mission is clear. If we want to get rid of Obamacare, we're going to have to replace President Obama. My mission is to make sure we do exactly that, that we return to the American people the privilege they've always had to live their lives in the way they feel most appropriate. The debate over the health care law's individual mandate is a very American debate. In broad terms, it pits the collective good versus an individual's freedom to choose. For a different perspective, we turn now to Gregor Peter Schmitz. He's Washington correspondent for the German magazine Der Spiegel. Gregor, you report primarily for a German audience. What's your take on this notion of the individual mandate? Is there an analogy in Germany, you know, the freedom to pay or not pay for certain services? Well, everything related to health care has always been a puzzle to a German audience or to a European audience. You mean U.S. health care? Right, yeah. because health care is really seen very differently in Germany particularly, because it is seen as a right which uh, you pay for basically by paying your taxes. Germans reacted now positively to the decision of the Supreme Court. However, you have to bear in mind that even before they were somehow disillusioned with the scope of the reform, because still not every American will be covered, it's still hard to explain to Germans why one of the richest countries in the world doesn't manage to cover all of its citizens and why healthcare in America is so much more expensive than in Germany. Gregor Peter Schmitz, thanks so much.
Thank you. For another point of view, we turn to Saeed Arakat. He's the Washington bureau chief for the Jerusalem-based Arabic daily Al-Quds. So when we talk about the Arab world, Saeed, we're talking about oil-rich countries where the government does take care of the people's health care needs and poor countries where they don't. So how do readers, how do your readers in the Arab world understand the Supreme Court decision today and the public debate surrounding it? Is it just baffling and foreign to them? Uh, in many ways, it is. On the one hand, you have the oil-rich countries, as you mentioned, where everybody is really taken care of all the way. So they send you to Europe. They send you to the United States if you're ill. And if you choose to do so, the government will step in, like in Qatar and Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, and they will foot the bill for whatever cost you incur. And then you had Egypt and Syria and Iraq under Saddam, where they claim to have socialist system with varying degree of effectiveness. In mm. Iraq, it was very effective because Iraq is also oil rich and he could take from the public coffers and provide the people with good health care. In countries like Syria, they are obligated under the law to provide actually not only Syrian, but anyone that goes to Syria from the region. But being poor, it is uh, basic and it suffers from a tremendous amount of disrepair. Now, if you take a country like Egypt, for example, where there isn't really oil to speak of, I gather that a lot of people have to rely kind of on Islamic organizations to provide health services. And I'm wondering if that has anything to do with the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, perhaps. Indeed, it has everything to do with the rise of Muslim Brotherhood. A vacuum and a tremendous disrepair was inflicted on all public aspects of public life in Egypt, but especially health care. So the Muslim Brotherhood was able to step in and fill some void, not all the void, but some void, especially in the poorer neighborhoods that were providing good health care along with food and so on for the really downtrodden. And they garnered a great deal of support. And as we saw, this support was reflected in the elections of a week ago. Syed Arakat, Washington bureau chief for the Jerusalem-based Arabic daily Al-Quds. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, sir. Some Americans worried about health care costs have been looking to Mexico for cheaper options. It's too soon to tell how today's Supreme Court ruling might affect that, but we can say this for sure. Medical tourism has been a boon for Mexicali in Baja, California. The small Mexican border town has seen a steady influx of U.S. medical tourists in recent years. Last year alone, 150,000 patients made the trip, looking to pay less for a broad range of medical procedures, anything from root canals to liposuction. Jennifer Medina's article on Mexicali's health boom is on the front page of today's New York Times. Jennifer, how did the medical tourism boom start in Mexicali? It started pretty organically. I mean, I talked to one patient who lives not too far from the border and has been going there. He's about 35 years old and had been going there since he was a kid. Uh, but in the last few years, Mexicali government officials have really embraced it and tried to make it part of their tourism plan. And now you've got literally hundreds of doctors lining up trying to get more and more people to go essentially for cheaper and care that they argue is just as good as what they could receive in the U.S. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, how safe uh, is the care when compared to most U.S. clinical standards? It's quite hard to know. Certainly when you talk to officials and doctors in Mexicali and, and patients, they will tell you it is just as safe. But there are not that there are no uh, accreditations that are the same as the U.S. It's a little bit difficult to know what infection rates are. It's really just a question of are you willing are you willing to take the risk? Mm. I think many people are quite willing to do it for a root canal, but might uh, have more hesitation if it were something like bypass surgery. 
So who's making the trip? Is it Americans with no coverage? Is it Mexican-Americans who happen to be in the know uh, on the savings in Mexicali? Who is it? It's all of the above and, and plus people from nowhere near the border. Um, I talked to from people who have insurance but couldn't see their doctors quickly enough. I talked to people who have no insurance and are Mexican-American immigrants or Mexican immigrants who live in America. Um, and I talked to one woman who was from Oklahoma and went there for liposuction, what's called a mommy makeover. Mm. So it's really a wide variety of people. Jennifer, do you know how the, the U.S. government and medical community, uh, do you know how they feel about this? I don't think the U.S. government has weighed in too much on it, but certainly medical community is skeptical mm. of it. They will first argue that the infection rate risk is quite great, and you don't know what kind of follow-up uh, procedures you'll need when you come back. I mean, you point out in your Times article that uh, the, those 150,000 patients uh, last year who went to Mexicali brought more than $8 million into the city's economy. I mean, given how much it brings to Mexicali, won't local officials only just, you know, try and grow the business there? Absolutely. And that's what officials think, that they will just try to capitalize on this more and more and more. And many of the hospitals, most of the hospitals, that are doing this are privately owned hospitals that make a profit and can cater to whatever need the patient has. One of the favorite anecdotes that people there like to say is that the nurses will warm your hand before poking you with a needle. You can read Jennifer Medina's New York Times article on Mexicali's healthcare boom. We've got a link at theworld.org. Jennifer, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. So there's still all this gloomy economic news coming from Europe, and you'd think this would be a bad time to sell American products there, especially a niche product like craft beer. That's the stuff produced by small independent breweries. Well, sales of American craft beer are booming in Europe, especially in Sweden and Britain. The world's Jason Margolis explains what's going on. Smutty Nose Beer isn't a household name. The brewery in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, is about the size of a high school gym. J.T. Thompson shows me around. This is uh, the Laverne and Shirley portion of the tour. Uh, we have uh, a bottling line. We have a crew of about eight guys on the line. A couple um, of guys are manually putting cardboard six-pack holders in boxes. Yeah, we're, we're still pretty, pretty hands-on. Smutty Nose's biggest seller is its India Pale Ale, a bold brew rich in hops. Thompson says American craft brewers are firmly grounded in European traditions from Belgium, Germany, and the U.K., but with an American twist. I think what makes them distinctly American, and I think this is an inherent part of our national character, is we'll take something and we'll make it bigger or more bold or more robust, and that's exactly what we've done as American craft brewers. So we've really been able to draw from a lot of different traditions and sort of reconstitute them or reinvent them adding things like spices, fruits, and chocolate flavors. Smutty Nose is currently only sold in 19 eastern states and the District of Columbia. And yet, they're also doing some modest sales in Western Europe. Smutty Nose wins its share of awards and recognitions. Thompson says beer lovers the world over know the score. I read uh, a couple years ago that beer is the, uh, the second most popular hobby on the Internet after pornography, so... Through that, you know, there's such a free exchange of information that it's not hard to get little sort of subcultures of awareness about what we're doing here in America. That's happening in Sweden. That country is the second biggest importer of American craft beers, only behind Canada. One of those beer-loving Swedish internet researchers is Jorgen Hasselquist. 
He owns a bar in Stockholm called Oliver Twist, which specializes in American craft beers. We've been basically drinking the same thing over here for a long, long time, and all of a sudden you got this selection of, of really flavorful beers with character and something different. He says the Swedes don't have as strong of a brewing tradition compared with, say, the Germans or the Belgians. So the Swedes were more open to American imports. People just realized immediately on the first sip that these guys can actually brew some fantastic beers. Still, the Swedes are way out in front when it comes to embracing American craft beers. American beer sales in Europe are still dominated by Bud, Bud Light, Coors, and Miller. Jim Cook, the founder of Samuel Adams Brewery in Boston, doesn't blame the casual European beer drinker for taking this view of American beer. Mass-produced, mass-marketed, fairly light, highly carbonated, which are fine for what they are. They're like McDonald's and Burger King and Taco Bell, uh, and we've all had some of that. But he wants more European beer lovers to give his bottle a try. I met with Cook in the barrel room of his Boston brewery. If Budweiser is the king of beers, Sam Adams is the king of American craft beers. The oldest uh, of these barrels have been aging my beer for 20 years. That's for a specialty beer called Utopias. Cook says the Swedes were the first Europeans to embrace his beer style. But he says Europeans elsewhere are also slowly changing their impressions of American beer. Very similarly to what happened with wines. You know, it wasn't until the famous Judgment of Paris in 1976 when some of the small craft winemakers, if you will, in the U.S. sent their wines to a blind tasting against some of the great vintages of Europe and, in fact, won most of the categories. Two years ago, that moment arrived for American craft beers at Oktoberfest in Munich. And they announced the gold medal for the best Oktoberfest in the world went to Samuel Adams Oktoberfest. The air went out of the room. That's not just Cook patting his back, says Jorgen Hasselquist. For Sam Adams to win that in Germany, I mean, that's just mind-blowing. And, you know, if the beer was that good, it deserved to win. Hasselquist adds that the Germans have been doing beer the same way since the 16th century and that maybe they also could use a bit of change. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Still ahead, political cartoonists in China learn to stretch out on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A French electronic antique is about to retire. I'm speaking of the Minitel, launched in 1982, and yes, these days that qualifies as antique. Minitel was a sort of precursor to the Internet, a system that allowed users to access information through a home terminal way before the web did that. To this day, Minitel has 2 million users in France, but on Saturday it goes offline for good. The world's Adeline Sierra used to be a faithful Minitel user. Adele, first of all, tell us what the Minitel actually looks like. Well, for me, it was like the three Bs, you know, like big, boxy, and beige. 
Not a beautifully designed object, but sturdy and, and simple. It was a cube-shaped unit, a bit like the first Macintosh computers or a small basic TV with a sort of fold-out uh, keyboard. Uh, you would just plug it in and dial 3615. 3615 is 3615, mm-hmm. the symbolic number, to get access to most basic services. And to this day, it's favored by people who don't want to use a computer, don't want to bother with the Internet. Mm. But I, I do know that there are many of these units stored in attics and basements collecting dust these days. Now, people would use it kind of like the yellow and white pages, but there were so many other services that that we now associate with the Internet that were actually accessible on Minitel. I mean, I actually bought train tickets in France on, on Minitel, and I thought it was the greatest convenience in the world. Yeah, it was really convenient. It was distributed for free, Marco, by the telephone company. At the time, it was a state-run company. And um, it was an electronic phone book, but you could also, like you said, purchase train tickets, check train schedules, stock prices, read classified ads, all kinds of information, and also chat online. And in fact, uh, dating and X-rated chat rooms, not surprisingly, uh, were the bread and butter of the Minitel. Now, I got to say, when I went to France after Minitel came out, I saw all these billboards where it'd say, call 3615-3615 on the Minitel. It was kind of like seeing the letters WWW for the first time. In retrospect, France seemed pretty futuristic. Yes, this was a groundbreaking device, but France really never capitalized on a Minitel, even though in 1982 this was pioneering technology, as you said. The state never managed to export it or to expand its technology, and of course the Internet took over eventually, so many say there were many missed opportunities there. Now, there may be about 600,000 Minitel units out there that'll be useless on Saturday. What's going to happen to them? Well, for the units that will be returned, they'll be recycled. But uh, some people I know want to hang on to their units like a collectible item. Maybe valuable someday. <laughs> Maybe. You never know. And I know that some people having are having separation anxiety. I read one post by someone who was asking for help to disconnect from the Minitel and launch into the scary Internet. What about you, Adele? Are you sad to see the Minitel go? Well, I haven't used one in a long time because I'm pretty addicted to the Internet myself. But I do feel a tinge of sadness about this because it's really the end of an era and the the end of the little device that could. The world's Adeline Sierra. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Marco. In West Africa, the semi-arid region of the Sahel is facing yet another food crisis. The United Nations says nearly 20 million Sahelians are facing food shortages this year because of drought, high grain prices, and other problems. But there are some pockets of hope in the region. One of them is in northern Senegal. That's where a sustainable farming project is making life a bit easier for some often uneasy neighbors. Amanda Fortier has our report. The meandering Senegal River Basin, a few hundred kilometers inland from the Atlantic Ocean, is a stretch of Africa so dry and desolate that the ground cracks beneath your feet when you walk on it. So it can be a bit of a shock here in the Futatora region to suddenly see a patch of bright green land. Mariam and Yang walks along rows of delicate blossoms of red and white hibiscus, leafy corn stalks, and buckets filled high with okra. She names each crop in a broken mix of French and Pular, her local language. This is what's known as a super vegetable garden, or SVG. It's part of a three-year-old experiment in intensive, small-scale farming, tended by Nyang and 99 other women. Nyang and most of the others are Mauritanian refugees who fled ethnic violence in their own country more than 20 years ago. The rest are local Senegalese. 
The project is run jointly by the United Nations Refugee Agency and a small French development firm called JTS Seeds. The first advantage is that we can produce with this technique. Modigay is JTS Senegal's director. He says each garden can grow up to five times more produce than traditional local methods, using very little land. Each SVG project begins with a selection of seeds and organic soil conditioners and fertilizers. But Gay says the real key is making the most of the region's scarcest commodity, water. Traditionally, farmers here grow only during the short, rainy season, and they typically rely on peanuts and millet, which compact the soil and don't let water seep through. Gay says the SVG approach includes more varied crops and uses veils and tarps to help hold water. A small drip irrigation system draws water from the river. Together, Gay says these tools allow people to farm year-round while reducing average water use by three quarters. For years after they arrived, both the Mauritanian refugees and the Senegalese were having trouble making ends meet and getting enough to eat, which inevitably led to tensions. Refugee Maryam Anyang says the farming project has changed that. Nyang says project members have more food and more variety in their diets. And they even have surplus produce to sell, bringing in badly needed cash. Even better, Nyang says, the project has improved relations between the refugees and the locals. A couple of hundred kilometers east along the river valley, iron gates open onto another group of SVG plots at the Hamadi Unari refugee camp. About 50 Mauritanian and Senegalese women set to work with babies on their backs hose and shovels over their shoulders, and large plastic buckets and watering cans balanced on their veiled heads. Habibaro leads the team. She's a 48-year-old former hairdresser. Habi says she and her neighbors had worked this plot for 18 years before the Super Vegetable Project arrived. Those farming efforts were killing the land, she says, so they were skeptical about the new approach. But she says they soon realized this project would be different. Mora Gay of JTS Senegal says the shift came with the very first harvest. Gay says in that first harvest, the women brought in 200 kilograms of cucumbers and 300 kilograms of okra. Now, he says, the farms here are the most successful around. <laughs> Shortly before sunset, the women and children gather around team leader Habi Barrow in a gesture that might have been unheard of here not long ago. One of her Senegalese neighbors says she's so happy with the farming project, she wants to sing. With plows and shovels in hand, the Senegalese and Mauritanian women begin singing and dancing together. The UN Refugee Agency hopes to set up another two to 300 super vegetable gardens here this year, which it says could directly benefit another couple of thousand people. For now, the agency is carrying the roughly $700 startup cost for each farm. But there are plans for a local NGO to start providing microloans to help keep the projects going when the UN leaves. For the world, I'm Amanda Fortier, Hamadi Unari, Senegal. You can see how some refugees in Senegal are embracing eco-farming. They're pretty darn talented, too. As you heard, they sing and dance while they eco-farm. We have a slideshow at theworld.org.
Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, the story of a young Muslim girl who fled from Myanmar to Malaysia. She rejoined her father who fled years earlier, but he didn't recognize her. When he left me, I was fat, I was white, I was beautiful, he said I was cute. Right now I look like a boy, I'm not look like a girl. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. China's booming economy is slowing down, so Chinese leaders are looking for new ways to stoke the engines of growth. One of those engines is the private sector. But since the start of the global economic crisis, the government has favored state enterprises over private business. It's given them easier access to loans, lower interest rates, and other preferential treatment. Now there's a new initiative to help at least some private companies. For the first time, the government's allowing them to issue junk bonds, high-risk but potentially high-yield securities, to entice investors. The world's Mary Kay Magstad has the story. The offices of Nine Star Technology are in a slightly run-down building in Beijing's high-tech neighborhood. But don't be fooled by appearances. This company makes and sells financial capital software. It's just a dozen years old but it already dominates half the market for this kind of software. Founder and President Xia Hongguo says the company's still growing at about 30% a year, and it needs capital to fuel that growth. So he was quick to sign up when he heard China would be allowing the country's first junk bonds to be issued this month. This is great news. Before, when companies like us needed to get capital, there were only two ways. One way was to issue stock, which effectively means giving up a share of your company. The other was going to banks, which often requires physical collateral that a software company generally doesn't have. And when neither one of those would work, we'd go to the loan sharks, which is burdensome and very dangerous. The loan sharks charge interest rates that average around 21 percent, and it's not pleasant for borrowers when they don't pay back on time. Nine Star Technology just issued its own junk bonds, paying 8.5 percent. Shia says that's only slightly more interest than the company would pay on a bank loan without having to jump through as many hoops. This junk bond is the first capital tool in the Chinese market that doesn't have to be approved by the government bodies. You only have to register. This is very interesting to us. It's interesting to the Shanghai Stock Exchange, too. This exchange is light on private companies, despite the fact that the private sector accounts for an outsized proportion of China's GDP growth. Startups and medium-sized companies grow especially fast and need access to capital. Xia Jianting, the assistant to the president of the Shanghai Stock Exchange, says while only a few companies were allowed to issue junk bonds this month, the market is expected to expand fast. 
The market demand is very large. I think in a couple of years, the number of companies issuing junk bonds will outnumber the listed companies. But for now, he admits, the junk bond market is off to a cautious start. Junk bonds are only available to institutional investors worth at least $1.6 million or individual investors worth half that. The idea is that investors should know the risk they're taking. But another idea, he says, is that the private sector get a boost that in turn can boost China's long-term growth. We want some companies, after they issue the bonds, to become big and strong, maybe even become the next Apple or Microsoft. It'll take more than issuing junk bonds to make that happen. Much in China's economy is skewed to favor state-owned companies. For all the talk of wanting to shift to a consumer-led economy with a robust private sector, economist Nicholas Lardy says those within the government who are personally profiting from the status quo haven't been so quick to act yet. Possibly this combination of circumstances China is facing today could lead for more decisive action on the part of the new leadership when it comes in. I think nothing focuses the mind at the top of the Chinese Communist Party more forcefully than the prospect of a long, sustained slowdown in economic growth. A a once-in-a-decade change in top party leadership is slated to take place this autumn. This month, one government official told a conference of state-owned enterprise managers to prepare for what he called a long winter, three to five years of slower economic growth. The new junk bond market might help the more nimble private sector pick up the slack, and early results are encouraging. Nine Star Technologies' Xia Hongguo chuckles when asked how his company's issuance of junk bonds is going. <laughs> how do I say, he asks. Well, we asked for $1.5 million. We sold out in less than a day. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. There's public-private tension in another sector of China, political cartooning. Yep, there are political cartoonists in tightly controlled China. Some cartoonists work for official government-run publications. Others do their cartooning for private new media outlets or simply post their stuff right on the web. Political cartoonist Joel Pett of the Lexington Herald-Leader got to know both types on a recent trip to China. He was there to talk about cartooning and freedom of expression. Pett says he immediately clicked with his Chinese counterparts. There's actually a really special kind of a bond among cartoonists anywhere you go in the world. I assume it's our uh, shared futility at railing against uh, injustice and (laughs) authority and arbitrariness, but it could just be something in the ink. I don't know. So uh, what would you say in terms of China? You you say, does it seem to the Chinese cartoonists that uh, what they're doing is futile? I mean, is is the cartooning scene growing or is it uh, kind of repressed right now? You know, it's rare for me to meet another cartoonist with as dim a view of the usefulness of the craft as I have. Uh, No, they didn't seem that way at all, especially the young ones seemed uh, very excited and energized by it, despite the fact that they were taking risks that I have to tell you I'm not sure I would have the courage to take. Like what? Well, like publishing online inflammatory anti-government cartoons, uh, getting shut down on your website 180 times. And I love this, uh, Marco, getting invited to tea, which is the euphemism for what happens when the government wants to speak to you about what's going on with your work. Really? That's what they tell the cartoonists when they don't like what they Yeah, they invite them tea. to tea. Yeah. <laughs> and then they sit you down. There really is tea, apparently. But uh, 
You get the message. So the web has provided a new forum for cartoonists in China, it sounds like. Is it, is it a forum that, that both appeals to them but also scares them a little bit? You know, some aspects of it are a lot like here. You, you can get a vast audience, but you can't get paid. But, of course, here, you know, there's no risk of uh, having anybody invite you to tea. <laughs> right. And if you're a cartoonist who works for state-run Chinese media, what limits are there on what you can draw about? You know, a lot of the cartoons are really good, uh, just not the ones about the Chinese government itself. I mean, if you're drawing about, uh, you know, fishing rights in the South China Sea or something uh, internationally, you know, the cartoons are fine. Was there one cartoon that struck you in particular where it was, wow, that's that's really clever. It doesn't really get at anything super provocative, but but it's a very clever thing, and I, I, I like it. The one that really got me was there was one – you know, some of these cartoonists are essentially illustrators for op-ed pieces. Mm. And there was one op-ed piece that said this entire uprising in Syria was a concoction of the U.S. government to distract the American electorate from our weak economy, mm. to which I took great umbrage because if there's one thing Americans don't need, it's government help getting distracted. We can do that <laughs> ourselves. We have NASCAR. We have Dancing with the Stars. We can distract ourselves. You went to China on a tour that was sponsored by the U.S. State Department. What's their interest in political cartooning? Their interest is broadly promoting American values, and in this case, freedom of speech. They invite cartoonists, other journalists, librarians, various people with an interest in free speech issues to a lot of different places to make a lot of different kinds of presentations about free speech. And editorial cartooning is just one of those, albeit uh, – almost universally seen as on the cutting edge of free speech, which I find interesting. What was the most useful piece of kind of cartooning uh, wisdom that you shared with the audiences? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say I shared a lot of wisdom. Uh, I think what surprised a lot of the audiences the most was uh, how rough I was on Obama. And, uh, you know, the art form is generally negative, so there aren't a lot of laudatory cartoons about him. And they kept asking me, uh, you know, what do you got against Obama? Why do you hate him so much? And I kept saying, you know, actually, I don't. This is just uh, part of the job is to uh, push authority to do better. So uh, I think that surprised people. What did you find most surprising about cartooning in China when you were there? I was the most surprised at how open the young people are about their uh, freedom of speech issues. When I was there 17 years ago, I didn't find that to be the case. But at every stop this time, or just about every stop, the questions came immediately. You know, what do you think the future of free speech issues is in China? You know, how are we going to uh, deal with the with the government's efforts to control communication, et cetera, et cetera? You know, I don't know how it'll play out. Certainly, uh, regimes are capable, as we see in Syria, of some uh, of some brutality. But it just seems to me like uh, the day, if it hasn't already arrived, is certainly coming when you just can't control information. And there's a billion of them, you know. Mm. Joel Pett, a Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist for the Lexington Herald Leader. He just spent two weeks traveling around China meeting with Chinese political cartoonists. Joel, thanks a lot. Marco, thank you. It's a great pleasure. Again, you can see some work by one of the cartoonists, Joel Pett, met in China. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. By the way, tomorrow on The World, recycling relics of the Cold War, China has thousands of bomb shelters beneath its major cities. In Beijing, some are open to tourists. In Shanghai, some are open for business. Entrepreneurs rent them from the government.
Every one of these shelters are actually owned by the Air Defense Bureau, is the real landlord. They have one building where the bomb shelter is actually on the middle floor, <laughs> like on the 20th floor. And so sometimes they don't really make sense. One American turned his underground shelter into a record store. Others have opened a wine shop, a subterranean bar, and a men's underwear boutique. Shanghai businesses underground. That's tomorrow on The World. Burmese pro-democracy leader Aung San Suu Kyi is in France today. It's the last stop on what's been a triumphant European tour. But now her trip is being overshadowed by violence back home. It involves a group known as the Rohingya. The Rohingya are Muslims who for generations have lived in Myanmar, also known as Burma. But they're not Burmese citizens, and they've long faced persecution there. New tensions between Burmese Buddhists and Rohingya Muslims have flared into deadly riots, and thousands of Rohingya have tried to escape across the border. In the past, the Rohingya have fled to Malaysia. It's a Muslim-majority country, but Malaysia doesn't recognize the Rohingya as refugees, so their lives there are precarious. The BBC's Jennifer Pack has the story of one Rohingya teenager who yearns to make Malaysia her permanent home. Sharifa Binti Hussein was born in Myanmar, but she doesn't have a Burmese birth certificate. She's part of the Rohingya minority, who are considered stateless. Her father escaped to Malaysia in 1994 after he says he was harassed by the Buddhist military government. The rest of the family managed to follow a few years later, coming by boat and trucks. Sharifa was six when she arrived in Malaysia, and her father didn't recognize her at first. When he left me, I was fat, I was white, I was beautiful, he said I was cute. Right now I look like a boy, I'm not look like a girl, because my head was short, I was black, I was thin, and like my father didn't recognize me. The family was happy to be reunited in Malaysia, but adjusting to life here wasn't easy. When I saw my father first time, I feel I have everything in my life. Sharifa told her story on stage last year as part of a theatre production about refugees. She says when she started school, the other children were cruel. No one wanted to be her friend. I cried. I said, nobody wants to play with me. People, when someone like try to talk to me, other will say, hey, don't talk to her. She's a refugee, you know, she's blessed king. She come to Malaysia to take away whatever we have. Hello, ma. Uh, are you Nora? Rohingya Muslims make up the second largest refugee group in Malaysia, but the country considers them illegal immigrants. Without official refugee status, they live in fear of detention, and Sharifa's family struggles to get by. Still, life has improved for Sharifa. She switched to a school for refugees. She now has friends and is earning top grades. She wears skinny jeans and colorful hijabs and ends her sentences with the word la, like many Malaysian teenagers. I pray to my God, my Allah, that I can stay at Malaysia for forever. I don't want to go to other country. Because we are refugee, because we are Muslim, so other country is not exactly a Muslim place. But Sharifa knows that until Malaysia officially recognizes refugees, she can't really be at home here. For The World, I'm Jennifer Pack in Kuala Lumpur. For today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for a chain of islands in the Pacific Ocean.
These 16 South Pacific coral islands straddle the equator. They were discovered by Micronesians for thousands of years. Pardon me, that's not discovered. They were inhabited by Micronesians for thousands of years before they were discovered by the West and renamed for a British sea captain. They later became part of the British Empire and played a strategic role in the battles between the U.S. and Japan during World War II. Today, the tiny islands are part of the Republic of Kiribati, and they may become the center of yet another battle, the effort to protect coral reefs from the effects of global warming. You've got about a minute to come up with the name of these tropical outposts. We'll be back with the answer after the break. is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Masterpiece, presenting Endeavor. Before his signature Red Jaguar, before he was Inspector Morse, he was the rookie detective constable Endeavor Morse, striving to make a name for himself. Sunday, July 1st at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Gilbert Islands. They're a string of tiny coral islands in the Western Pacific and the answer to our geoquiz today. Once part of the British Empire, the Gilbert Islands are now part of the nation of Kiribati. Coral islands and reefs around the world are threatened by global warming, but some scientists think that purely by an accident of geography, the corals of the Gilbert Islands might be spared some of the worst effects. Sabri Benashore has our story, which begins in Baltimore. At the National Aquarium in Baltimore, children ooh and ah at the colors of fish and coral waving and squirming around in the Pacific Coral Reef Tank. A foot away, a fleshy-colored Brent Whitaker looks on. He's senior director for biological programs at the National Aquarium. You you have all shapes and colors when it comes to corals, and actually the color is imparted by something called zooxanthellae, which is a symbiotic algae that lives within the coral. Now, one day, Whitaker came up to the tank, and all the color was gone. We noticed the corals were bleaching. Turns out a construction crew doing renovation work was to blame. What we come find was that the lights were being left on all night long. That may have raised the temperature in the tank ever so slightly, and corals are very sensitive to temperature. A rise in temperature of just one degree Celsius can mess up the relationship between corals and the algae that live within them. And if it goes on too long... They basically starve to death without them. With the corals go the fish, the eels, the shrimp, all the things that live on reefs. And that's important to people because while coral reefs take up less than 1% of the surface area of the ocean, it's estimated that a quarter of all marine life call coral reefs their home at some point, including 25% of seafood consumed by humans. What happened in the National Aquarium tank was an unintentional demonstration of a situation that's playing out in real life in reefs all around the world's oceans. Mary Hagerdorn is with the Smithsonian. Globally, the numbers of corals have reduced substantially. Um, You know, everyone has a different number, but it's going down, it's not going up. 
That's because, like the lights above the aquarium's coral reef tank, global warming is heating up the world's oceans. Scientists predict that in the South Pacific, in particular, the reefs are basically going to cook over the next century. And Cohen is with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute on Cape Cod. This whole area, which includes some of the most remote and pristine coral reefs in the world, is predicted to warm by three degrees or more by the end of the century. Now, that is a huge rate of warming, much more than we know corals can actually survive. But that rate won't be the same everywhere. And the variation was driven home when Cohen and her colleague, Chris Karnowskis, began looking at satellite photos of the Pacific. They saw some very funny little dots. When you really zoom in and you look near these islands, you see a signature in temperature that's cold, in an otherwise warm part of the ocean. What they found was that a few islands, just a handful, the Gilbert Islands, part of the nation of Kiribati, at just the right spot near the equator, were cooler and livelier than their neighbors. Turns out there's an ocean-long, deep-water cooling current that's fueling these islands. When the cold, nutrient-rich undercurrent passes through the island chain, some of the water is forced up to the surface which is just like air rushing over a mountain. They ran some numbers with supercomputers and found that as the climate changes, that current will strengthen. It'll be like an air conditioning unit, slowing the rate of warming by about seven-tenths of a degree Celsius. While that doesn't sound like a lot, that the rate of warming will be slower in these key pockets of coral life may offer them a better chance in the long run for adaptation and survival. As Cohen puts it, It's not looking good for anybody, but it's looking marginally better for a small subset of islands that are geographically well-placed. She says the Gilbert Islands should get special protections from short-term threats like sewage dumping, runoff, and fishing, so the corals there at least have a chance. George Stanley is a paleobiologist at the University of Montana. He says corals have been around for hundreds of millions of years. They've survived mass extinction events, and they might survive climate change, too. But... Recovery of ecosystems take as long as 3 to 10 million years. That's an incredible amount of time from our standpoint. And just a bit too long for humans to wait. For The World, I'm Sabri Beneshore. You don't have to wait at all for our global hit today. It's a musical trip around 1960s Africa. Our guide is guest DJ Manasa Piri of Joy FM in Lusaka, Zambia. Today I want to share with you a very exciting album that has been released out there in the United States featuring music from Africa from the very early 70s. It's called Psychedelic Africa. And let me introduce you to the sound of Victor Waifo from Nigeria. Sir Victor Waifo, as he was affectionately known in Nigeria and throughout Africa. And that song, Guitar Boy, features a funky guitar, almost sounding like it wasn't from Africa, and yet it is uh, as African uh, as high life is and was at the time. Psychedelic or funkadelic music from Africa was tremendously influenced by soul music, the James Browns of those days and so on. And uh, here's an artist, Ebo Taylor from Ghana, who's still alive 
in his 70s and is still recording funkadelic music from Africa to date. Ebo Taylor from Ghana, a major figure in high-life music of Ghana from the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, and is in his 70s now and still recording. The final track that I want to share with you today comes from Ethiopia, from Alemayehu Eshete, who in his youth started out imitating artists like Elvis Presley. In fact, he was known (laughs) when he was younger as Alemayehu Elvis. Here's a track from the 60s. Alemayehu Eshete from Ethiopia, winding up selections from the album called The Rough Guide to Psychedelic Africa, which is available to you in the United States right now. My name is Melissa Perry. Thank you very much, and I will see you again the next time. Great selection, Manasa. Thanks. That's our program today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, the Freeman Foundation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.